0: You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for tuning in to the show, however it is that you found it, whether it was through Revelations Radio Network, Revere Radio Network, the Black Vault Radio Network, YouTube, iTunes, Google search, whatever. I'm happy that you're here, and we're just going to jump right into some news. So let's see here. The first we're going to deal with is world gripped by international currency war. This is from roguegovernment.com. Brazilian finance minister Guido Mantega speaks out against devaluations, economic fear, increasing currency validity, and instability. The world is in the midst of an international currency war, according to Brazil's finance minister, as governments force down the value of their currencies to boost their struggling economies. The comments are the first public admission made by a senior policymaker without a pra- about a practice which has become increasingly widespread since the global economic downturn. Many countries, notably China, have been deliberately weakening their currencies, selling them on the foreign exchanges, or keeping interest rates artificially low, to make their exports cheaper. Economists fear that such moves are resulting in an increasing currency vo- volatility, volatility an instability. Incre- increasing competition among individual countries to devalue also makes it harder to uh, mount a co- coordinated policy response to the economic downturn, particularly amid fears of a renewed slowdown. The issue is likely to be high on the agenda at the upcoming G20 meetings in November in South Korea. China has resisted pressure from the U.S. to allow the value of its currency, the the yuan, to rise. Many countries in Asia, including the host, are reluctant to raise the issue for fear of antagonizing China, a major trading partner. Switzerland also began selling Swiss francs on foreign exchanges last year to weaken its currency. Brazilian finance minister Guido Mantega made his comments in a speech in Sao Paulo last night to Brazilian industrial leaders ahead of the presidential elections on Sunday. we're in the midst of an international currency war, a general weakening of currency. This threatens us because it takes away our competitiveness, he said. Brazil's economy is booming. Following economic reform on the back of rising of oil production, foreign investors have flocked uh, flocked to the country because of high interest rates and new investment opportunities, such as the $67 billion share uh, offering the state-controlled oil company, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so international currency war going on. That's interesting. I think that there is a lot of moving and shaking going on with the currency. And we've been talking about this for just a long time on the Frank and Chris show, uh, but that there is a move towards a global currency. I'm not sure when it's going to happen. The Bible certainly um, says that there will be a global currency in the sense that it's sort of presupposed. If you think that the mark of the beast says, you know, if you get the mark of the beast, uh, one cannot buy or sell unless they have the mark of the beast. That's presupposing some pretty major things. Number one, that there is a global bureaucracy bureaucracy in which that can mandate such a thing. That requires a global government. Uh, Global economy is also, uh, uh, I would say, insinuated there because you've got uh, a sense where they're saying that you can't buy or sell unless you have our you know stamp of approval uh which means that all the economies have to in some way be integrated in order to to uh, say yes we won't accept your money unless you have this thing so really so it it's nothing new under the sun but and I'm not sure when it's going to be there or if this has anything to do with it but just a general um just generally it's moving towards that it's pretty obvious we get stories all the time that say stuff like world currency is needed says the international monetary fund and they're And and on and on and on. So, nothing new there. Okay, we've got lots of things here. Credible but not specific. Threat on new terrorist attacks. Um, Let's see. U.S. and European officials said Thursday that they have detected a plot to carry out a major coordinated series of commando-style terror attacks in Britain, France, Germany, and possibly the United States. A senior official uh, said that while there is a credible threat, no specific time or place is known. And then uh, President Obama has been briefed about the threat, says another U.S. official. So just more of the same kind of thing. I don't know if people are still getting uh, scared by this kind of thing or not, but it's definitely out there. Another quick one from Infowars. Fluoridation challenged in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, the birthplace of public health, has long led the nation in disease-fighting crusades, vaccinating children at high rates and and uh, crafting anti-smoking campaigns exported around the world, but it ranks 36th when it comes to uh, providing residents with fluoridated water. Nearly 150 cities and towns could add the substance. Don't. A state study released this year found, even though fluoridation is hailed by the disease specialists as one of the 10 seminal public health triumphs of the past century. Voters in Springfield, Worcester, and elsewhere have repeatedly and sometimes resoundedly thwarted bids to put fluoride in their water, rejecting entry... uh, in treaties of dentists and health directors that the chemical prevents rotten teeth. So apparently this uh, is challenged in Massachusetts. And I would say that there are stories like this all over. Uh, If you go to one of the best sites on the internet about fluoride, bar none, is fluoridealert.org. It has to be org because I think the ADA.com. So you can also go to fluorideactionnetwork.com. And it's uh, known as the Fan Network, F-A-N, Fluoride Action Network. But network dot com will get you there. It's got so much of the information you need to know to prove this to people and to uh, prove it to doctors. Um, you know, one time I was on uh, the. At one point, I was kind of had this where I really, really wanted people to know about this, so I put together these packets, all with this peer-reviewed information and these studies and things like that, showing without a doubt that it was absolutely terrible, that it was lowering our our IQs, it was so dangerous to almost every known organ in the body, it was causing thyroid problems, it was causing liver and kidney problems, Uh, and now it's been admitted, several different things have been admitted. Number one, they admit that you should not give it to infants. Um, They were forced legally to admit that, that mothers should not put it in formula. But that's so ironic because now it's the only group that it's actually marketed for. You'll see this nursery water in Walmart and everything. Um, Nursery water is such a contradiction in terms. They had to admit because of legalities that, that mothers should not give infants this water. But yet... They've got a picture of an infant on this thing saying, "Give your infant's water. it's dangerous to them, uh, and it's dangerous to everybody. They also had to admit because of legal reasons that it should not be given to kidney patients, and these are just ones that they've had to admit if if the truth be told, they would have to admit that it's it's incredibly dangerous for everyone. Uh, but uh, I know that I'm preaching to the choir. A lot of people out there know this. But what I did was I put together a packet with this information and sent it all around to different news agencies and to uh, you know teachers and all kinds of people. And I, they actually put me on the news here uh, a few years back uh, in the context of other people. Like there was uh, a lady from the World Health Organization who was, and the point that I'm bringing this up is that when in that particular news story, she was saying to the doctors and uh, imploring them to read the toxicology papers. She understood what many of you may understand if you've ever tried to bring this up to a dentist or to somebody in the health profession, they will go crazy. They'll be like, No, you guys are crazy. This is, you know, all totally safe and it's been proven safe or whatever. And she was trying to say to those people, It's like, I just, for those people, I need you to go read the toxicology papers. We've all been told that it was safe, but has anybody ever read this stuff? And so that's what I would say is that they're, they go, they grow up in a school system, speaking of like the dentistry schools and the medical schools, that say things like, you know, you'll hear people talk about fluoride being bad, but those people are crazy, and they have all this, you know, sort of talk that they talk about it, and I'm sure they have some sort of studies that they show them or whatever, but, um, to conclusively prove in their mind that everything's okay. But it it's adding up, and now it's just study after study after study after study that shows this stuff is is absolutely wrong. And here, if you need any really good proof, uh, you can watch my video, um, Fluoride is Toxic Waste Literally, or I think that's what I call it. Um, but anyway, it shows that what's actually in most of our water, because most cities don't actually opt to get sodium fluoride, which is what all the studies are against. They're showing that that stuff... Pure sodium fluoride is what's causing all these problems. But what we get underwater, or most of us get, is uh, something totally different. It's uh, it, it's sort of called silico fluorides. It's something that's produced in phosphate, uh, in the phosphate industry. It's an incredibly toxic chemical that's literally taken from what they call wet scrubbers, which which is keeps uh, this toxic chemical from going out of the smokestacks of these factories. And they take that chemical, which they used to have to pay... A lot of money to dispose of, and now um, they they instead of disposing it, they literally sell it to municipalities who dump it untreated into the water and um, there's never been a test done on a human being before. why because it's so unbelievably dangerous. If they did a test on a human being, it would kill them, but you know in incredibly uh diluted amounts uh, it's just slowly killing us and slowly making us stupid. But don't take my word for it. Go go find that out. And I didn't mean to get it, go off on that uh, on that particular th- thread there. So let's let's move on. Um, let's see some quick ones about India. India is really interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about that in regards to Christianity. First, this story from New Delhi: the family of a 20-year-old Christian found dead last week in the northern state of Raj- Rajasthan. Suspected that he was killed, uh, or suspects. Uh, He was killed uh, by Hindu nationalists, though police claim he died of cardiac arrest. Uh, He was a farmer, and he was found dead uh, the evening of August 17th near a forest where he had gone to tend his goats. And his family... Uh, what does she says? Uh, says this. It seems he was his throat was strangled. The relative said, "I do not know who did it, but I'm sure he was murdered." His family was facing opposition for their Christian work, particularly by some of the residents in the hira village. Uh, this guy was uh, a teacher at a at a vacation Bible school organized organized by uh, an indigenous indigenous Christian organization called the Light of the World uh, Service Society. So the police are saying this guy had a heart attack and. The police are looking the other direction, but that is not uncommon in India. There's some weird stuff going on in regards to Christians in India and the government looking the other way to these types of things. In fact, in 2008, there was this crazy thing that happened. Like, uh, It's like the whole country or this whole section of the country was swept with this really anti-Christian murderous rage. And it was freaking everybody out and everybody had to move from the region that was a Christian and it got no coverage anywhere, but, you know, there was a lot of people dead from it. Uh, it's going to mention that in this next article, uh, which is uh, a slain former leader of Hindu converted to Christianity. Okay, a former Hindu converted to Christianity was killed this morning near Taijinia, a village in the district of Orissa, hit by anti-Christian, uh, this village was hit by anti-Christian pogrom of the August 2008 thing. Uh, police found the man's body beside a stream in the forest and have already launched an investigation. Uh, Pradhan, 47, had converted to Christianity about three years ago, becoming a member of a Baptist church. His murder coincided with the publication of the results of the National People's Tribunal, an initiative that 22 to 24 August in New Delhi was attended by victims, activists, and judges to order in order to report cases of violence of the pogroms of 2008, which so far have gone unpunished. Sajjan George, president of Global Christian Council of Indian Christians, says the news of the brutal murder uh, by Pradhan is deeply uh, distressing. We condemn this act made against the former extremist Hindu who became a Christian. Citing the results of the NPT presented today, the activist points out that the jury has reported a succession of forced conversions carried out by Hindu extremists in Orissa, even after the events of 2008. The fanatics, he says, use torture, intimidation, murder, economic boycotts, and public humiliation to convert or reconvert the population. Sajan George says the violence that began on August 23, 2008 broke the climate of peace and harmony present in Orissa. He calls on the central government, local authorities, and civil society to engage with all Christians to stop these criminal acts that continue to protect their religious minorities. So the Indian Christians are... Uh, like many other Christians out there, North Korean Christians, which we actually don't know a whole lot about. But uh, we're going to hit a story about that here in just a little bit. But also, um, you know, Christians in Asia, uh, Christians in, um, in the Middle East are, you know, in trouble. A lot of them don't have lives anywhere near our lives. So uh, just keep them in mind, especially as we, you know, enjoy the blessings that we have here. And moving on to a story that's been sent to me quite a number of times. This is the UN alien ambassador story. I'm going to read a version of this from news.discovery.com. It has been a strange few days for alien news. Not only do we have ex-military airmen coming forward about UFOs hovering over their missile silos, the United Nations apparently appointed an alien ambassador to become mankind's point of contact for extraterrestrials. Even betting companies are putting odds on an intimate close encounter of a third kind. Obviously, some media outlets decided to go all out claiming that the UN ambassador is needed to ask why the aliens riding in said UFO are fiddling with our nukes is it is it the responsible thing it's the responsible thing to do right there's just one catch the Malaysian astrophysicist Maslan Otan who according to the UK's press was about to become the UN spokesman to earth has no clue about her unprecedented promotion uh, it sounds really cool but i have to deny it Otan told the Guardian's Matthew Weaver it's Lucky, Weaver asked her directly, otherwise there might be some confused little green men when they're uh, when they phone the u n on their arrival. But why the confusion? Well, Otam is the head of the u n s Office for Outer space affairs and she is speaking at the Royal Society meeting next week about the political impact of an alien encounter back in January. Otam spoke at the society's detection of extraterrestrial life with the, and the consequences for science and society meeting uh, so is this alien ambassador thing just a storm in a UFO-shaped teacup? It looks like it. Why would the UN be an automatic choice to be first uh, to open the dialogue with ET anyway? I'm glad Otham is an astrophysicist and not a politician. But surely the guys at the SETI Institute, who incidentally try to communicate with extraterrestrials on a daily basis, should go be should be the obvious choice. Uh, if we ever received a signal from deep space, they'd be the ones to decode it. As I pointed out by Alan Boyle over at MSNBC. The SETI Post Detection Task Group already think it's their job. Even the director of the movie Contact knew that. We've considered it our job. We have for many years to cover this topic. Paul Davies, astrobiologist and chair of the group, told Boyle, we have no idea who this person is or where the UN UN's coming from, but they don't seem to follow through very well. We do welcome the interest of the UN and welcome the interest of any major diplomatic organization, Davies added. If they knew what they were doing, I would be slightly more confident. To be honest, I shuddered when I first heard the idea of having a single person who's supposed to blah, 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 blah. Okay, so, basically, it's not true. They didn't appoint this person. It's just an overblown media thing. And that they obviously do have an interest in it. They're talking about it, holding meetings about it. But it's more or less um, just a media thing. But that doesn't mean that it isn't doing exactly what it's supposed to do. When something like this happens we find so many times their news stories create public perception news stories drive media and so when you know we used to joke about on the frank and chris show how they would have a a news story every every month about on the dot saying that life had been found on mars and you read through the thing and it says life could possibly be found on mars if one day somebody finds life on mars but the headlines, you know, I mean, you ask most people today if they found life on Mars, like they would say, yeah, you know, or but it's it's this that's driving public perception. According to the theories that I put forth, I think that it's really, really important to get the world to believe that an alien uh, a visitation is probable and scientifically plausible. And I think that an alien visitation will be the engine that drives the real new world order. Uh, but that's my personal opinion. You can find out more about that in my um, my videos, two thousand twelve, uh, how two thousand twelve enlightenment will lead to genocide, or the two thousand twelve deception presentation. So basically, nothing much to see here, and moving on. So how about this rise in rise in baby boomers' suicides amid collapsing economy? You know, this is indicative of what's happened to us as society. Um there's a principle in the Bible that says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if you think about it, it's true. If we put if we invest in a stock market or whatever, then we are going to be watching that company that we're invested in like like a hawk. You know, we know everything about it, what their CFO's name is and blah blah blah. But if we put our money in other things, let's say you know when I give money to Gospel Gospel for Asia or something like that, I watch it like uh, a hawk. I'm like, oh gosh, you know, or, or Heart Cry. I love watching, reading their uh, updates from the missionaries and what's going on over there and stuff like that. Um, my heart is there. Where, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Also, the problem is is that in, we see this news story: rise in baby boomer suicides amid collapsing economy. Is that if you put your your treasures in your insurance and in your four oh one Ks in your mutual funds, that's what your heart is and your protection. If you lose that, then you've lost what you've been uh everything in your life, you know? And we have we're a culture of no in external uh values. We've been taught that from the beginning. We've been spoon fed that we are uh cosmic accidents and that we are accountable to no one and it's every man for himself and these kind of ideas. So it's not terribly surprising, but it also means that, uh, there's a great deal of hurt out there because of this false idea and false, um, information. So that's kind of where we come in to, to hopefully shine a light. That's why it's important. Evangelism and stuff is important because, um, People have been spoon-fed a lie. It's a dead-end road. If you follow it out to its logical conclusion here in America, we're all doomed uh, psychologically because our hope and our heart has been put on on totally wrong things. And uh, all it would take is for those wrong things to go away, for total chaos to ensue. So, on that wonderful note, let's go to North Korea, where they've appointed... Well, they haven't quite appointed him yet. They're not quite sure, but according to the... Uh, official press agency of north korea they announced the promotion of his son kim jong-un the 27 year old uh guy to a to be four-star general and there is a lot of significance in in this they are thinking that he is going to uh, uh pass the reins on to his son they've been circulating you know literature and you know pictures of this they've printed out like hundreds of thousands of like photos of him and stuff Interesting thing about the North Korean religion is that it was created to mimic Christianity but putting Kim Jong il and his wife and uh their son as sort of like the the Trinity and it's really a model of Christianity except for uh Kim Jong il is like the center of it. So there was actually a guy that created this whole religion for them that the reason they have such a closed system it is closed off from you know, any any contact from the outside world is because of the danger of that religion being exposed for what it is, essentially a copy of Christianity. That's why Christianity is the single most dangerous uh, thing in uh, North Korea. And, you know, we don't know a whole heck of a lot that goes on in North Korea because, well, you know, we don't know. I know there's, but we try to get into it, missionaries speaking of, by things like they... They try to smuggle Bibles over there, but that's really not working because they'll just follow the Bibles and they'll kill wherever they end up, kill the people. People get executed publicly for, you know, getting caught in churches and things like that there. And But radio is a big deal that from South Korea that's getting the gospel message to them. But also these packages uh, where they're putting balloons up in the air and sending them to North Korea. And, you know, wherever they land is wherever they land but just sort of uh, hoping that God puts them providentially where they need to be type of thing. So that's the kind of climate going to North Korea. You don't have a lot of wishy-washy believers in North Korea. If they're if they're in a North Korean church, you can bet they're real Christians, you know. They are people that are in it for the long haul, which for them might not be very long, unfortunately. Okay, so moving uh One more little, little kind of story here. First World War officially ends... Uh, this weekend, the First World War will officially end on Sunday, uh, 92 years after the guns fell silent, when Germany pays off the last chunk of its reparations imposed by the Allies. The final pay- payment of 59.5 million, uh, uh, I guess this is pounds, writes off the crippling debt that was the price for one world war and laid the foundations for another. Germany was forced to pay the reparations at the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. As compensation to the war-ravaged nations of Belgium, France had to pay the Allies some of the cost, waging uh, what was then the bloodiest conflict in history, leaving 10, 10 million soldiers dead. And so the initial sum was agreed upon for war damages in 1919 was t- $226 Reichsmarks, Reichsmarks, uh, Deutschmarks, I guess, uh, a sum that was later reduced to $132 billion. And so the official... Uh, end of the of World War one will be over at least financially for them this weekend, so that is the news. I need some really cool transition music is what I need just some like you know some cool little newsy or outro sort of music that would be that would be awesome uh, okay, so first, a few sort of show notes about this uh ministry uh, for uh the last few months. things have just been so awesome as, in terms of who come in to know the Lord, and every day there's some uh you know some ministry to do, people to talk to, and things like that and it just it's just more than I ever thought possible It's been so great about the people that have been led uh to us that we can help and stuff, and that has been a prayer of ours for a while so uh, I just want to say to other people out there who have questions about the Bible who have questions about really anything, you know whatever your question is you can email me and that's what uh you know that's what i really like doing that's what i make time for above every single thing else so if you have not emailed me in the past because you thought maybe i was too busy or i might not get to it i'm just wanting to let you know that that's what i'm i'm looking for i'm looking for your emails to uh, answer your questions that might help in some way or whatever so um so send those emails you can go to my website com. you can hit the contact button and contact me that way or you can go to my my regular email address, which is nowhere to run 1984 at gmail.com. One other thing that I wanted to mention in this show was that, um, I have been thinking a lot about this ministry in terms of the sort of stuff that I produce. Like it's, it's a lot of times been traditionally stuff to help people in the new age and things like that. And that's where I've, uh, you know, bear bore the most fruit in the sense of, you know, people coming to know the Lord and stuff like that is mostly and I'd say ninety percent of the people that I talk to are in some way or another, you know, former New Age or a cult or something like that, or are currently in it. Something to that effect. Or just truth movement uh type folks. So what I would say is that I've had a you know a tremendous burden, especially the last few months for the for Catholic people and before that Muslims and Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. And you know, I've really felt like um it was time to go back into trying to help the new age stuff as much as I can. So, uh, I've been praying for opportunities and things like that. I've been praying specifically that the Lord would allow me to debunk David Icke. I knew it was something that I wanted to do, but I basically was just asking him if I could because, you know, I, I never got the okay from him to do it before. It never was something he put on my heart, even I kind of wanted to do it, but um, so I just had been asking him, and I think that I got some confirmation that said basically, yeah, go on ahead and and do it. And I'm really excited about that because, uh, well, as somebody like Michael Tassarian or whatever, he his videos on average get somewhere like 125,000 views per video or something like that. Uh, somebody somebody like David Icke would get average 400,000 views per video. So there's some way more than that. So it's an opportunity to get to way more people and not just with showing them that the that the new age is wrong and problematic but that it is in fact um uh causing us to to believe the doctrines of the new world order that we claim to be fighting and also it's an opportunity to present the gospel to them in a way that um you know they they will listen to hopefully. So I think I'm going to start research for that project today, and I want to make it probably the best video that uh, I've ever done. So I'm going to spend some time with it, and I don't know how much I'm going to. I'm going to try to keep producing these shows. I think it's a lot easier that I'm doing the news for about half of it, and then sort of rambling for the other half. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to be a lot easier to, to produce these. Obviously, still going to be doing verse by verse Bible teaching and everything in between. And, of course, answering your emails and stuff like that. So keep keep them coming. Uh, I just want to play the last thing here is uh, about a 20-minute video clip from a video that I just made yesterday for a Catholic apologist named Devin Rose. Uh, I sent my apostolic succession video to Mr. Rose. He was a guy that, as I explained at the very beginning of this video, was um, I listened to every one of his podcasts on iTunes while I was researching um, apostolic succession and Catholic doctrine in general, and I found him to be very genuine. So I thought I would send him the original apostolic succession debunked video to get his response on it, and hopefully, to be honest, that he would show me where the holes were, were on it, and then I could correct them and have it be more solid that I could then use to go out and evangelize to Catholics with, uh, just to sort of make sure it was bulletproof. But to my chagrin, he really didn't uh, he did do a response and I'm thankful for that, but his response didn't deal with anything that I, that I talked about. The The main focus of my response video was, um, the verses were being debunked, uh, and he didn't touch any of the Bible verses that I, that I mentioned, essentially just said that they are not needed or necessary. So this is, uh, was an opportunity. I didn't really feel like doing this video. It actually took me probably a lot longer than it should have, maybe 10 probably 10 hours to do this, this little thing here, um, off and on. And it, uh, it was something I didn't want to do, but I felt like I should. And then I guess I was like, well, maybe if it was just evangelism for one guy, maybe that's, you know, uh, that's, that's what the Lord wants to do. So whatever, I'll do it. And, um, gosh, it was, uh, an opportunity there at the end to explain the gospel to him. And I think that hopefully that was, uh, that will bear some fruit but really, nothing's going to bear fruit unless, uh, you know, we pray for him. So I do pray that as you're listening to this, after you listen to it, just uh, pray for Mr. Rose, Devin Rose. He's a Catholic apologist who was a former Protestant and is now a Catholic. Uh, just from his testimony, he was basing that on really a misunderstanding of, of something that the Mormons believe, which, uh, is not true. So, uh, just, just pray for him. And, uh, and here is the clip from the video that I just made uh, to Mr. Devin Rose. Hey, uh, before I get started, I just want to first say that I sincerely appreciate Mr. Rose taking the time to respond to this video. And I do have a great respect for you, which I acquired while listening to your podcast on iTunes of all the Catholic apologists that uh, I listened to during the course of this research. You were far and away the, the most genuine of them. So I wanted to present this video to you for your response, so I do thank you for doing that. And I have no ill will in this of any type. I had even debated whether or not to do this response, but I decided that I would do it so that I could make my position known for the record on some of the things that uh, you, you brought up. So my original presentation was one that detailed certain passages from the Bible. In some cases, I was refuting the possibility of those passages supporting apostolic succession. I got that from certain uh sites like Catholic.com would use these verses to support it. So I was refuting that they could be used to support it. So in other words, there were verses that refute apostolic succession, and there were other verses that refute the possibility of certain verses being used to support apostolic succession. So I was a little disappointed when um these main points uh, I felt were not addressed. You mentioned that you didn't feel that apostolic succession needed to be proved from the Bible. And you cited my, um, well, I'll just play what you said.
1: Well, why must it be found in the Bible, according to him? Because he says the Catholic Church wants to be on an equal footing with the Bible. And he. this is a misunderstanding he has. He gets this idea because he read a catechism paragraph that said that the tri- sacred tradition and the sacred scriptures are to be reverenced with equal sentiments. So... He he then equated sacred tradition with the Catholic Church as a whole, and that's an error. It's a misunderstanding, because there's really kind of three legs. The Catholic Church stands on. There's the sacred scriptures, the sacred tradition, that makes up the deposit of faith, if you will, and then the magisterium, or teaching authority. So not any one of those is the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church isn't trying to say that, She's equal with the scriptures in some way or is over them. Uh, But Mr. White got that into his mind.
0: Let me start by quickly referencing the, the catechism quote that I quoted earlier from paragraph 82 of the 94 catechism. It says, in speaking of the church, it does not derive for certainty about all revealed truths from the holy scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So, the Catholic Church says here that it derives its certainty about truths equally with tradition. That means that tradition is on equal footing with the Bible. There's no way around that. That's exactly what it's claiming here. The question that was brought up was because I said that the Catholic Church wants to be on equal footing with the Bible, so it's really a game of semantics. It's really a question of to what, de- what degree this tradition, which is supposed to be on equal footing with the Bible, is the Catholic Church. And I would look to a Catholic encyclopedia entry which says that speaking of this type of tradition, ecclesiastical sort of tradition, it refers to something, uh, to a thing, doctrine, account, or custom transmitted from one generation to another. And so it's it's a fairly broad meaning, but essentially what I'm trying to demonstrate here is this tradition is not a, an ambiguous tradition. It's the tradition of the Catholic Church. Uh You put the analogy out of the three legs of the Catholic Church, which I have heard you mention before in your podcast, and it gives me a good opportunity to explain here why this one doctrine of apostolic succession must be validated from the Bible, even if no other doctrine in the, it needs to be. Uh, This is the one that needs to be, because all other doctrines derive their authority from this presumption. So you say that there are three legs in the Catholic Church, and they are Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, or the teachings of the Catholic Church. And I just want to draw your attention to the fact that two of those legs, the other two that are not Scripture, are critically dependent upon apostolic succession. Essentially, you trust the early church, one of the legs, uh, and the and the tradition, because you believe that they had a kind of teaching power derived from apostolic succession. And similarly, the magisterium you trust because uh, because you believe that those teachings are empowered by a teaching authority of the apostles via apostolic succession. The Bible validates apost- apostolic succession and thus strengthens the other two legs, which rely on apostolic succession for survival. Or the Catholic Church requires blind faith. So I think that we have to determine to be genuine in our faith. To say, well, I need to look and see if it's in the Bible or if the Bible is refuting it. That's why I wanted you to check and see about these verses. um, Because I I thought that you would be a person who would be able to say, you know what, This, this isn't in there. This is a problem. One of the legs is gone. And there needs to be an answer for this. There was one verse that we did get to mention and it was something that I used as basically a side note about how the apostles were said to be foundations. And if foundations, then it would not make idiomatic sense for them to be succeeding uh, constantly because that's not what foundations do. Sort of a side note, but you do offer something that I do want to talk about in in, in regards to
1: it. He talks about Ephesians two nineteen through 22 and that's where the, Paul says... You know, the household of God, the church, um, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And he, he kind of tries to take that analogy further and to say, well, but a foundation is, is only at the base. You can't have multiple foundations, so you can't have successors of the apostles, because that would be multiple foundations. And, I mean... I think that's taking the analogy a bit too far. I mean, even, I think, in one of Peter's letters, he talks about that we are members of the church, living members, who are built up together into the church. So, the idea that Christ is the foundation, and then Peter also, he said, on this rock I'll build my church, he's part of the foundation on Christ, and the apostles and prophets are part of that foundation built on Christ. This is how Christ is building his church, and then we're built up as living members well there's a place there for successors of the apostles
0: okay first i would suggest that uh, what you're quoting in first peter is wrong it's not what it says at all in fact christ is not part of the foundation he's the cornerstone and that's the consistent idiom that you find but secondly i want to mention that what the reason i mention this is a side note in the first place is to to ask the question how consistent do we really think these idioms are i mean we see here paul calling the apostles foundations we see in the book of revelation john calls the apostles foundations and he says he saw that written in heaven that they were foundations the holy spirit seems to me to be calling the apostles foundations the question is did the holy spirit choose could could have chosen a better term because foundations are something that's built and don't have to be succeeded that they are a one time thing you say that the that the idioms are not consistent and you say there's nothing to worry about there because, you know, it changes what the foundations are over in Peter. And you suggest that Christ is a part of that foundation over in Peter, not just the apostles. But that's not true. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it, it says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also are lively stones, and built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So we are stones as well. We're built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. But uh, let's move on. Wherefore also is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, The same is made the head of the corner. So, Christ is the cornerstone. We are the spiritual house built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. Consistent idiom, never missing a beat throughout the Bible. Uh, And so, what I'm trying to say here is that, as you say at the end of that, you say, and, you know, in describing this house, you say, and there's room in there for the successors to the apostles. You don't give any indication why there is room in this spiritual house for successors to the apostles or why they're needed. You just simply say that there is room in there for them. And in the context, I would suggest, of getting the idiom wrong, saying that Christ was the foundation.
1: So, let's see. He said, uh, he tries to to answer questions, and I've asked this question, so I was glad that he wanted to answer it. He He says, you know, a Catholic might say, when and why did apostolic succession stop? And when well, he, of course, claims, it never started. Um, the apostles didn't believe their apostolic power was going to continue. And he says that their particular apostolic power ended with the death of the last apostle. And, and isn't that an interesting phrase? Because who else says that? That the authority left, um, you know, the, the rightful authorities left or whatever, the authority of the priesthood left with the death of the last apostle. The Mormons say that. That's one of their big claims, and they say the great apostasy then began. This is something I pointed out a few times before. Protestantism is very similar to Mormonism in the sense that it claims that this apostasy or heresy happened in the church, and the church totally went off the rails. Um, And the the Mormons say, well, it was after the death death of the last apostle. Usually Protestants push it out a little further. Oh, no, it was in the, the late 100s. Or it was in the 200s. Some will even say, you know, 4th or 5th centuries. But somewhere in there, and it gets kind of hazy when uh, the church went into grave error. So he's he's just kind of echoing what Mormons say, which doesn't loan very good credence to it.
0: I would say that, first of all, your response to this is is essentially just name-calling. But second, I would say that it's rather poor name-calling, and I'll explain what I mean. You're describing, when you're describing Protestantism, I don't know if you're knowingly doing it or unknowingly, I suspect unknowingly, you're describing Mormonism. They are the ones that believe in what they call the great apostasy. They say that apostolic succession really did exist, but that at some unknown time, the leadership of the Mormon Church does not specify a date, but they say it must have happened that this apostolic line was broken because, um, you know, otherwise the Church of Latter day Saints wouldn't be relevant in America or something like that. The whole thing is, is that they do believe in apostolic succession, and that's who you're referring to. This whole wishy washy, I don't know when the date was you're talking about the Mormons. And that's what I couldn't understand when I was listening to the podcast originally, when you were saying this, and I was like, what is he talking about? Because you're telling your class that this is what Protestants believe. And I'm like, I have never heard uh, this in my entire life. Um, But anyway, so I would say it's a straw man. You're knocking down Mormon doctrine and claiming it to be Protestant. What I'm saying has nothing to do with Mormonism. And what I'm saying is that the power given to the apostles by Jesus Christ was not needed to be nor was passed down successfully from generation to generation. The Bible's absolutely silent that this was needed to happen. There's no evidence of it being of it being done in the Bible those passages with which Catholic apologists provide to say, uh, this is a source for this happening are completely irrelevant. And that's why I made the video that I did originally, which we didn't discuss any of those, uh, verses, which I was refuting. Uh, thirdly, there are passages that absolutely refute it like Mark nine thirty-eight through 40, which I hope I get a chance to discuss in more detail later.
1: Um, let's see. So he talks about, he says the Bible, um, the Bible says the Holy Spirit's going to lead us into all truth, and he interprets that as most Protestants do individually. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to individually lead me into all truth, uh, not through some institution like the church. It's, it's an in, in more an individual way. And you could interpret that, that verse either way. The Bible doesn't exactly say. Um, the Catholic Church says, well, those verses support the idea that the Holy Spirit's leading the church, right? And he leads us individually, but with the church and not against her.
0: Okay, I want want to talk a little candidly about this next point, uh, about the Holy Spirit, because I think it has the opportunity to explain stuff that certain Catholics have asked their whole lives. Um, So let's deal first, though, with the topic at hand. Does the Holy Spirit lead us individually or through the church? And um, you were saying that it could be interpreted both ways, but the Catholic Church seems to suggest or does suggest that when those passages come up that it's talking about leading through the church. Now, I can quote you a wall of scripture right now that I would say doesn't require any special interpretation that says that it does not. The Holy Spirit leads individually. But one that I really want to quote because I wanted to talk about it was Mark nine thirty-eight through 40. It says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow us. Jesus replied, Do not prevent him. There is no one who performs a mighty deed in my name who can at the same time speak ill of me, for whoever is not against us is for us. And I think this is pretty clear evidence that the Holy Spirit is leading this man uh, individually. The question is, did he have the Holy Spirit? I think the reason why um, the Holy Spirit chose to to show that this man was driving out demons was to make an emphatic declaration that this man had the Holy Spirit. There is There is no casting out of demons without the Holy Spirit. I've casted out demons and I can tell you that they won't budge. Without the authority of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, um, even the first miracle that Mark records uh it Jesus cast out a demon, and, and the Pharisees look at one another and they say, "What is this new doctrine?" I mean they'd never seen it before. This is a totally new thing, so this man had the Holy Spirit, and the other thing that's notable is that he had nothing to do with the apostles. Does he therefore now have the power to, to hand down that line? Or does the people that are like him, there, no doubt there's more people, do they now have the power that the apostles had? Can they have an apostolic line continuing? I mean, it's very, very problematic. I mean, it's, it's clearly in the Bible for this specific purpose. But the main thing that I wanted to say is that a lot of, a lot of the misconceptions that Catholics have about Uh, you know, Protestants and and what they think it is and they think it's such chaos and how could the Holy Spirit be leading anybody to truth when they have different interpretations and these kinds of ideas. Uh, The problem is this, and understand this, please, that not everybody that calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. And listen closely to what I'm, I'm about to say. Being saved is a supernatural thing that God does to us. He recreates us from a corrupt mass, uh, a mass that desires sin more than it desires God, uh, that has a heart that uh, is made of stone. Uh, We need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, as Jesus says in John uh, chapter three. But once we repent and believe the gospel, which is what it says to do in the Bible, we are given a new nature, a heart of flesh, as Jeremiah prophesied, one that would make us start to hate sin and desire God. Not because we're trying so hard to be better, but because a new nature has been given to us. The power that starts to change our heart from the inside out is the Holy Spirit. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, uh, "The the the gospel that does not change my life will not save my soul." Um, I used to say that I was a Christian for most of my life, but I still had the same sinful desires. I just hid them from people. Desiring God was a chore resisting sin was next to impossible but i found out that i was a victim of a type of heresy that has been sweeping modern america for about a hundred years and it's unbiblical and it's this notion that saying the quote sinner's prayer will save you and then people say it and nothing changes in their life and they die cursing god and and people have to just say oh he was saved but i figured out that that's not what the bible said at all the bible said to repent and believe the gospel And a long story short, when I figured that out and did repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, I was really, for real, saved. And I knew I was saved uh, by using the Bible's own test to see if you're truly saved. And that is that my life began to change. Sins I used to struggle with uh, have been gone for years. I desire Him, and I desire His word more and more. I don't even know where that that comes from. I've been given a love for other people that I formerly had only pretended to have, uh, None of this was even possible before. I I didn't get more holy. God changed my heart when I was given the Holy Spirit. Everything I know about the Bible I've learned as a result of, of the Holy Spirit guiding me through the scriptures. I've never been to any kind of college except for like one semester in film school. And the uncanny thing is that when you talk to real Christians there isn't any deviation in doctrine. There might be the very smallest things that have nothing to do with anything. But what you'll see more than that is their their eyes. You'll see that they they love the Lord and they love people and they and they have a kinship with you that is unexplainable. That you just met, uh, that you would bring these people into your house and trust them completely. That it's it's a spiritual thing. That when you meet a true Christian, it's absolutely different. That you're both on this path of holiness. That you you're you're being changed from the inside out and. Yeah. What I'm trying to suggest to you is the reason that the modern Catholic doesn't see any of this stuff is because they don't really believe that the Holy Spirit will change their life. They don't believe that uh, you know there's, there's any power out there to set them free from the bondage of sin, that it's all just a religion. It's being good enough to get to heaven. And, and what I'm saying is that when the Holy Spirit... Uh, and When you get saved, it changes everything. That's why you know a lot of Christians, when they first get saved, they have an uncanny thirst for the Bible. They just start reading and reading and reading and reading the Bible. And finally, just a few verses, like Romans 8, 9 says, uh, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Uh, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Romans eight fourteen says, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Romans 9.1, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.10-17, but God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all, all things, even the deep things of God. For who among them knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? The same way no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in the words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who... For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I'll suppose I'll end this this video right now, but I I do want you to know that that's the reason why I'm doing this, is because I feel that, that, I mean, I know that the tradition system, the sacramental system, has nothing to do with the Bible and how to receive the Holy Spirit. It's more like I was just before. I, was, I could claim that I was a Christian because, after all, people told me if I said the prayer then I had to be a Christian. Similar to your situation where you're saying, I know I'm a Christian because everybody told me I did all the right things. I am a Christian. I do all the right things. I am a Christian. But you, like I, didn't see anything happening in my life. There wasn't any biblical validation that I was, in fact, saved. I didn't have any power. There wasn't any Holy Spirit in my life. I was just told that there was. Uh, what I'm saying is that the real gospel is what you need to, to check with what you're being told need to read the bible uh see see one of my videos about the gospel the first word of the gospel or um you know the gospel track at at, at, uh, at dvdtracks.com uh just just check it out for yourself if you're at all interested Okay, everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Nowhere to Run. Remember, you can email me for any reason at nowheretorun1984 at gmail.com. And you can also go to the website, which is nowheretorunradio.com. Remember to pray for me for the upcoming research for the David Icke Project. And I thank you for your time and your prayers. Take it easy. Bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at nowheretorunradio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.